Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, March 12th, and we're talking about another soon-to-be-public company. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's inarticulate international inquirer of inspecting Israeli investments, Brian Feroldi. Brian, I don't think you're inarticulate. But I do occasionally uh, inquire about Israeli investments, so, you know, that, that, that fits, right? That's true. Yeah. I, I find you to be quite articulate, and, and that's why we do the show together, right? And even when we're not articulate, that's part of the charm, I think. We both, we both have our hiccups here and there. Dylan, a part of my title must be self-deprecating. Otherwise, I don't feel comfortable. That's right. No, we we are nothing if not self-deprecating. <laughs> um, and, and we are uh, made better by our community often, Brian. And that's that's certainly the case with what we are going to be talking about today. Uh, we, we're doing a show on Global E, probably a name that a lot of people haven't heard of before. It is not currently traded. We have the prospectus, and it should be available sometime soon. But we owe this one to a friend of the fool over on Twitter. Yes, this is likely, highly likely to be a company that have just would have flown way under my my radar. Uh, this company is based out of Israel, and its biggest market is in the UK. Uh, it is listing in the US, but uh, if it wasn't for uh, one of my Twitter followers named Max the Comrade for putting this on my radar, we probably wouldn't be talking about it right now. So shout out to Max the Comrade. I appreciate the suggestion. And as always, we love getting suggestions for the show. Uh, you can either reach out to Brian on Twitter or me on Twitter, or you can write at industryfocus at fool.com or at MF Industry Focus on Twitter. Um, we are working off of proposed information. And we, we often have to do this caveat, Brian, uh, as, as we talk about things. So shares not currently available. Uh, we don't know the valuation. Uh, we, there are some elements of the business we still have yet to get a good sense of. However, we have the prospectus, and I think before we get too far into it, I'm just going to put it out there. There are some staggering numbers with this company, and this is something kind of similar to a prospectus we did a little while ago, uh, Olo, where I'm like, man, this is an attractive business. There are some numbers that really jump off the page. Dylan, but when I pitched this show to you, I just took one note of the slide and I said, <laughs> well, how does 100% revenue growth, net income, and 140% dollar-based net retention rate sound to you? And you said, okay, we're talking about it. <laughs> so yes, this company has some very exciting headline numbers. Yeah, I think I borrowed a phrase from our Monday host, Jason Moser, and went with a, hey now. I mean, that is that is strong. That is quite strong. Uh, and we'll talk about exactly how they do it. Uh, for people that are looking to follow this business, the proposed ticker is GLBE. And I love it when a company names itself something that makes it very obvious what they do. That's what we have here, Brian. Global E, global e-commerce. They, they don't make you do a lot of guesswork on what the company does. <laughs> yeah. The company is, as you probably have guessed, focused on global e-commerce. In fact, their mission is to make e-commerce border agnostic. The core of what this company does is it provides a cross-border e-commerce platform that provides localized shopping experiences for merchants. So say you are a small merchant and you're on, let's just say Shopify, and you want to offer your products and service in international markets. That's not easy to do. There's a whole lot of rules, uh, regulations that you need to um, consider. Uh, each market has its own language. Uh, there could be 
duties and taxes. Uh, there's shipping problems. There's return problems. There's fraud problems. It's a really, really complicated thing. Yet at the same time, if you are a brand, of course you want to offer your products around the world. So Global E provides a platform that integrates with a lot of other shopping platforms that makes it easy to do just that. Yeah, and critically, this is dynamic, right? It, it is something that keys in on information that the, the site is getting from users to dynamically provide localized experiences. And, and I think that's that's kind of the linchpin of this is what they're able to do very smartly is make it a seamless process for someone who is maybe out of market, quote unquote, for wherever that, that business tends to operate um, in an experience that makes sense to them, either via language, via currency, um, or, or just the way that they're being marketed to. Exactly. I mean, you can imagine how important that kind of stuff is if you are a shopper uh, in those markets. Again, uh, let's say let's say you're bo- uh, you're you're a shopper in say the Ukraine and you want to buy from a company uh, out of uh, England. That English company might not have the expertise to provide you with uh, the currency that you want or in the language uh, that you want. And there's a lot of nuances that need to be really nailed to make sure that the conversion rate in international countries uh, matches what you see in your own country. So that's what globally helps. To do. This will be no surprise to anyone that has followed the e-commerce space over the last year and a half, but this was a business that was doing pretty well, and then 2020 happened, and it dramatically scaled what they were doing in terms of gross merchandise volume, in terms of revenue, a huge year for them, and really where they went from being like an interesting but pretty small company to firmly a small cap that, that's probably going to wind up going public uh, at a valuation that starts with a B. Yeah, and even uh, this company was only founded in 2013. So we're talking about something that's uh, barely eight years old at this point. Uh, and yes, by by 2018, so they were founded in 2013. By 2018, uh, their platform did about 200 million in total gross merchandise volume uh, across the platform. But that number basically doubled the next year and then more than doubled uh, in 2020. So last year, the company did over 750 million in total uh, gross uh, merchandise volume. So the number of uh, customers that they had uh, sign up was a record and the spending per customer that they saw was a record. So yes, like many e-commerce companies, 2020 was a banner year for this business. Yeah. And, and I think what it does is it shows there's there's some mega tailwinds here, right? Like there's, there's, there's a lot of things that are moving in the right direction for this business. And then I think within the space that they operate in, um, Brian, to be honest, I don't know a lot of companies that do precisely what they do. Usually when we're talking about e-commerce players, they tend to be specific to a region and they tend to dominate that region. Um, But we don't really talk about ones that are border agnostic. This, and that's one thing that they call out in their perspective. I was looking down to try and find, all right, this sounds interesting. What's the competition? And they basically said their number one competitor is companies doing this thing themselves, just choosing to take all of these processes uh, in-house and launch it on their own uh, e-commerce uh, site. They did mention that they do have some smaller uh, competitors, but they were so small they weren't actually named in the prospectus. But Globally thinks that it is the largest provider of its solutions. Yeah, and I could see how this would be a market that people would be interested in, but have a hard time wrapping their head around. Because when you look at the things that Globally offers, it gets complicated very fast in terms of what they support. So they are supporting 25 plus languages, they are supporting 100 plus currencies, 150 plus payment methods. Um, and you know, if you spend any time looking at you know international markets, you realize 
people pay for things totally differently in different parts of the world. And because this is something that partners with businesses, but is truly a direct-to-consumer model, it has to be on the consumer level. It has to be however people are preferring to pay for things, preferring to communicate with things. And then you get into the shipment, the tax elements of things. This is a big, hairy problem to fix, Brian. Exactly. And you can imagine how important those factors are. I mean, if you were shopping on a website and everything was priced in euros, would you know what was a good deal (laughs) or not? I mean, it is really, really important to have everything about an e-commerce site um, tailored to you. Uh, You want the language to be correct. You want the pricing to be correct. You want the shipping solutions to be correct. So to your point, managing all that stuff is incredibly challenging. So I can really see the appeal of this product for small and medium-sized businesses. Yeah, I think one way to think about it is kind of what what Netflix has done with their content, right? Like the the early stage of e-commerce and shopping online is I can go access things in other parts of the world and shop in a way that maybe I wasn't able to. It might not be on my terms. I might have to do some uh, conversion in like a Google search tab to figure out how much I'm paying, but at least I can access it. And that's kind of what Netflix was doing for a really long time with content, right? They were like making this content. A lot of it was English local content for our purposes in the United States, putting that out into international markets. What we've seen them do over the last couple of years is say, streaming's awesome. People love it. We want to go global. And we want to make content that is specifically for those markets. We want things that make sense culturally to those markets and is um, first in those languages, first in those cultures, right? That's precisely what's happening here, is we're, we're making the merge from, okay, we're doing it broad scale to we are doing it in a way that makes sense for people um, on a much more localized level. And what's exciting here about Global E is they do have some data that shows, hey, if you partner with us, you will see a significant uplick uplift in your international sales. They call it right in the S1 that they now have over 442 merchants that are on their platform and they have quote unquote seen, we've seen merchants experience uplift of over 60% in international traffic conversions after they convert to our platform. If that is a is a metric that is roughly applicable across all of its merchants, you can see that paying for this platform and partnering with uh, Globally just makes sense because it impacts your top and bottom lines uh, even more so than the cost of this. Yeah, it it seems like a no brainer if you are trying to get into uh, a larger market, which is which is really what everyone is trying to do, right? You know, the the idea of e commerce is that you aren't bound by your local economy, and uh, this is taking what would be maybe stepping out from your immediate neighborhood and putting you in your country and actually putting you on the world stage and, and making you available to much more customers, which, you know, if you're thinking from the business perspective, that's boosting your TAM, Brian. Exactly. And as companies uh, move their digital advertising online, as they build their uh, social media presence, uh, there's no geographic bounds uh, to those things. So being able to handle international volume is becoming increasingly more important over time. Yeah, and and the the numbers are borne out. I mean, you talked a little bit about some of the, the case studies uh, that that have been done, but but really, like because we are in an environment where everything can be measured, uh, you can see the benefits of a business like this pretty quickly. Conversion rates are one of the easiest ones that that I think they'll point to in their S one, and just intuitively make a lot of sense because if you're in a checkout experience that is in your language, using your currency, and uh, is stating international tax implications and logistics in a way that makes sense to you, you're not going to you're not going to feel nearly as nervous or anxious about placing an international order. And that and that flows through to all the other elements of the site experience that that they're offering, right? 
Nothing convinces customers to sign up like actually proving to them with sales and numbers. And if this company, if you can adopt Global East platform and see a significant instantaneous uplift in your international sales, you've probably got a customer for life. Yeah, and and in their case, uh, with, with you know the the merchants are their customers. They have hundreds of, of customers, and they're seeing really good growth. Um, what's what's kind of hard to suss out with a business this big is, you know, how how relevant are all these merchants? And because they're international for the most part, working with a lot of companies that are abroad, a lot of the names aren't as familiar to me when I was looking at their um, their partners and and some of the folks they work with. But over 440 merchants, up 50 percent from a year ago, Brian. So, so they they saw some pretty big adoption in the last year. Yeah, that's still a relatively small number. And that is one reason why I think that this IPO might go under most investors' radar. Uh, again, this company is based out of Israel, and its number one market is the UK. So some of the customers that they call out on their on their website are Mark Jacobs, uh, Edom, Iconic London, uh, etc. Many of these are names that I have never heard of before, because that's just not the core market that we are in. Uh, for that reason, maybe we can cross our fingers that the valuation here won't be too nutty. Yeah, I think that's right. And and you mentioned Edom. I will throw out there, if you kind of want to see this in action, I, I don't know 100% what's going on under the hood with the tech, but I imagine what you're seeing here, if you Google Edom, gives you a decent sense of what things look like for localized content. So as a US user, I search Edom. Um, they are a kind of like underwear, swimwear, fashion brand. Um, what comes up first for me is a URL, int.edom.com. And that is an, uh, an English language version of their website. Now, their core website, edom.com, is the second result, and it's entirely in French. And I did take middle school and early high school French, but I am not qualified to buy anything on a website. You know, it's, it's too specific, right? The vocabulary. And so you can see just in searching this, the value that it brings to people for you to be able to immediately understand, okay. These are the categories. You hear about a brand from someone else, and you can go to the site in a way that makes sense to you. I, I, I think it's helpful to illustrate that. I will note, because they sell underwear and, and, and bathing suits, um, if you're in a spot where it's not appropriate to do that, you know, don't, don't search that. <laughs> but I think it is illustrative of, of what they're able to offer to the user experience. And Dylan, what's the thing we always say when we review companies like this, especially ones that we don't have experience with? This sounds great. Prove it. Prove Show it me to the us. numbers. <laughs> Prove it to us that this actually has value by showing us some numbers that back up what you're saying. Um, globally, I think, has done just that. Again, this company only has about seven years of operating history total, uh, but the last few years have seen some really impressive numbers. One of the things this company calls out in his S1 is that it reports a gross dollar retention rate, and that is essentially a dollar for dollar measure of same customer spending um, minus uh, churn. And so this number will never go over 100%. If it was exactly 100%, then they retained 100% of their customers. But over the last three years, this number is 98%. That is incredibly high. Now, on a net basis, which does factor in upselling, downselling, churn, everything like that, uh, their debt dollar retention rate has been over 140% for the last three years. Those two numbers to me prove, wow, our customers remaining loyal, and wow, are they upping their spending. 
Yeah, and and Brian, I'll admit, I was looking at the prospectus and did a double take a couple times because they they throw out their net dollar retention rate uh, for years ended in 2019 and 2020. They say 134 percent for year ended in 2019, 172 percent for the year ended 2020. It, a number like that, it makes you almost wonder if it's real. That's how impressive it is. Watch out, Snowflake. We have a new top dog <laughs> with dollar-based net retention. <laughs> right? I mean, we're not used to seeing numbers uh, that big and that impressive. I think it speaks to the fact that they are solving a really unique problem. Um, and, you know, this is this is an industry that has major tailwinds behind it. This is, this is where money is generally going to be going on the retail side. We talked about some of the names uh, that they work with. You notice a trend there. It's, it's a lot of clothing and fashion brands. These are things that tend to ship internationally pretty well. Um, you know, they, they don't spoil. You don't have to worry about any of that type of stuff. So I, I imagine that that's probably going to be a decent amount of their customer base. But that's not to say they couldn't expand beyond that. Yeah, and it's hard to gauge where that cust- where that number is going to head uh, over time as the pandemic subsides and uh, shopping becomes uh, more localized. But uh, either way, even the pre-pandemic numbers that this company threw up uh, were pretty uh, impressive. And one reason I think that that number was so impressive in uh, last year was because by the very nature of this company's uh, business model. So it generates revenue in two different ways. Uh, first off, it ger- generates a service fee whenever a, uh, a a transaction takes place that utilizes its platform. Uh, secondly, it generates money from fulfillment fees, and that's when globally assists with the handling of uh, shipping, um, uh, the handling, uh, delivery services, uh, etc. Last year, those numbers were roughly split to be 37% service fee and 63% uh, fulfillment fee. But the important thing there is that this company makes money as its customers uh, make money. So the more the the, bo- the more that its customers uh, make from international sales, uh, the higher and higher fees Global E gets to charge. So that aligns this company's incentives perfectly with its customers. I think we've seen a couple companies be mighty successful in the e-commerce space when they've had incentives aligned with customers, Brian. I think so too, Dylan. Does Twilio say come to mind where the more you use it, uh, the more you have to pay? That is a model that I think works really well. So this isn't necessarily a subscription-based thing. The the key metric to watch here is going to be customer retention and gross merchandising volume. Yeah. And, and they've both been very impressive so far. Uh, I think while uh, you know services are kind of one of the easier things to focus on, if, if you look at the pie and, and the way the revenue is broken down, the majority of it is fulfillment services. And I think when, when you look at what providers can offer merchants, the harder the problem is to fix, the more likely they're going to stick around if, if they do a good job. I look at international fulfillment as a brutally difficult thing to do. And, and I think that if they're able to delight customers in that space, they're going to have them for life. It's happy. It's good for me to see that that's a good chunk of where the revenue is coming from. I, I completely agree. Uh, so I think that that fact is going to really keep customers uh, loyal for uh, for a long time. And that was borne out uh, in the numbers. Uh, the other thing that I think gives this company really high switching cost is a lot of its uh, integrations. Uh, so the company calls out that they have direct uh, integrations with Facebook, PayPal, IBM, Salesforce, Shopify, Big Commerce, SAP, WooCommerce, and more. So again, this is a this is a platform that can be used to augment those other things, not necessarily replace them completely. So that I also think helps to give this company really high switching costs. 
Yeah, and, and you know the fact that in their prospectus they don't they don't call out any immediate big competitors is is a sign that you know the moat is pretty impressive there. Uh, you know, it's funny though hearing you go through that list of integrations and thinking about the size of this company. You know, we don't know the valuation ultimately because it's not public yet, but. Um, I could see any number of those businesses looking at this company and saying, that would be a pretty interesting acquisition target at some point. I totally agree. I mean, Shopify could sneeze and probably buy this company out with how big <laughs> it's uh, how big it's gotten. So that will be uh, something that we'll have to uh, check over time. Uh, one other thing that I think also adds to the moat is you just mentioned above how complex uh, this uh, servicing, uh, w- fulfilling the needs that um, uh, globally does is. Another thing to uh, to keep in mind here is that this is not a high-margin uh, SaaS business here. In fact, if there was one big knock that I had against uh, uh, this company, it would be that it's, uh, it's gross margin. So last year, its consolidated gross margin was only 32%. So this is not a SaaS company with 70, 80, 90% gross margins. So when the price-to-sales ratio comes out, you do have to keep this in mind. I'm hoping that the market is rational and applies a number to this that makes, uh, that makes sense. But yeah, the gross margin here was only 32% next year. Now, that number was up significantly over the last two years. In 2018, their gross margin was 22%. In 2019, their gross margin was 28%. And last year, it was 32%. So it's trended higher over time, and hopefully there's more gains to be had. But again, this is not a high margin business. But you know what it is? It's profitable, Brian. And, and and how often do we get to say that on a prospectus show? I mean, this is this is rare for a company that is showing the growth that it is to be profitable. We we talked about it with Olo too where it's like it's it's probably accidental profitability more than more than anything else. I don't think it's the game plan for them, but it proves out that there's something strong here. Totally. Uh, last year, this company did reach profitability for the first time uh, in its history. wasn't a high number. It was only about $8 million. But off of $136 million in sales plus the low gross margin, boy, is that impressive. Prior to coming public, this company did have uh, a pretty strong balance sheet too, $68 million in cash, uh, no long-term debt. So we don't know how much it's going to raise, but financially speaking, this company is pretty strong. Yeah, it's it's in pretty good shape. I think they have a decent amount of flexibility. That's that's a pretty good amount of cash for them to have on the balance sheet, given the size of the company. There's only going to be more after they go public, um, and I mean, there's there's really no shortage of places that they could invest. So you know, you want a business like this to have a decent war chest. Exactly, and the long term growth plan is probably exactly what you would expect. Uh, they want to add existing customers based in their current geographies. They want to get more spending out of the customers that they have. They want to consistently add new geographies to make their services even more useful. And they plan to add partnerships and launch new products and services uh, over time. That's a pretty realistic growth plan that they've already um, executed really well. Now, when it comes to the real potential here, uh, sometimes a company puts out a TAM number and you just think, wow, did you include the kitchen sink in there? Like, (laughs) my God, is that number so huge? And that's the case that we see here. So this company says that its total addressable market opportunity is $736 
billion dollars. Yeah, that might just be a tad bit overstated, Dylan, but uh, needless to say, with only $130 million in trailing revenue, I think there's plenty of room for this company to grow. <laughs> I'm glad you added the context of their trailing 12-month revenue, because, you know, someone in their head might be like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. And then you're like, oh, no, that was that was $135 million. That, <laughs> that, that, that was, that's the number they're working off of. So they're ambitious, and that's good. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a long way for them to go. And, uh, you know, I... We talk about TAM a lot. Uh, it can be a helpful number. Uh, sometimes it can be an overly ambitious number, too. Yeah, and that is probably the total gross merchandise volume that they're talking about there. So you have to compare that to, say, their, 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 their gross merchandise volume on their, on their platform, which was $775 million, uh, roughly last year. But needless to say, if this investment doesn't work out, it's not because of lack of opportunity. <laughs> I think there's a lot to like with this company. Um, you know, we'll have to wait until we get a, a better sense of valuation and whatnot, of course. But it checks a lot of the core boxes, right? Like it creates dependency with the customers. Um, we see the recurring revenue model, Brian, which you love so so much. Um, it, it seems to the, me to be the kind of thing where there's pricing power. And when you look at the management team for this company, Brian, founder-led business, um, and it's a and it's a customer-centric business model. Yeah, this company was founded by uh, three co-founders in 2013. Uh, one of them is currently the CEO, one is the COO, and one is the chief marketing officer. All three of them are still with the business today. Uh, again, we don't know anything about how much of the company they currently own. I've got my fingers crossed that it's a pretty high number given that this business is only seven years old and it's already profitable. But uh, I do like seeing a businesses that are run by, run by founders and that's what this company has. Yeah. If I had to put a ballpark guess out there for valuation, it's, it's going to be a low single digit billion, I think, probably for this company. And at that size, management really matters. We, we talk about it all the time, but this is not a very big company in terms of employee headcount. They have about 300 employees uh, between Israel, the UK, and, and some of the other countries that they operate in. So the folks calling the shots at the top really are going to steer the direction of the business and decide whether it becomes you know something that gets deep into the 10, 20, 30 billion dollar market cap range or has a hard time growing. Um, Traditionally, we've seen a lot of success with founder-led businesses, and it's it's always something we like to see because we know the motivations are there. We know there's skin in the game. Um, there are so many great elements of it, Brian. That said, uh, I did do some looking on the Glassdoor reviews for this business. Because it's a smaller business, we don't have as much information on them. Um, they weren't glowing. They weren't terrible. It was kind of middle of the road. Um, if, if you look, it's about 3.6 stars. Uh, 71 would 71% would recommend to a friend, but that was only on 10 reviews. This is a small business. Um, I do want to see a little bit more from them. I was looking at their YouTube channel, just trying to get a sense of uh, interviews with management, a little bit more about company culture, that kind of stuff. There wasn't a ton there. I think most of that is because the company is so small. And because I would think that they're so new. Yeah, it's really hard to read anything into any review on Glassdoor when it's an international company because Glassdoor isn't as big in international markets as it is in the US. And two, this company has 10 reviews. I mean, who are the type of people that review on Glassdoor? People with extreme opinions in either way. You typically get five stars and one star. So I take Glassdoor reviews seriously when there's a couple hundred reviews, not exactly 10. But to me, this is going to be something that as this company comes public, watch it. Watch it execute. 
is the management team aligned with the uh, with the uh, with the incentives? Do they still own a lot of skin of the game? Do they underpromise and overdeliver? Those are the kind of things we'll only learn over time from watching this business. When it comes to risks, Brian, uh, I'm sure some people listening are thinking about this, but small company customer concentration risk is kind of immediately one of the first things you think of. I hope so, because I hope that's how we're training people to think. Uh, yes, and this company does have some customer concentration risks uh, to get into. So again, while they have over 450 total paying customers, their number one customer was 18% of revenue uh, in 2020. On the plus side, that was down from 25% the year before, but make no mistake, there is one customer here that has an outsized portion of uh, the company's revenue. Now, they did call out that their top 10 customers were 37% of revenue. That was down from 44% uh, the year ago. So if you look at two through nine, they are all sub 10% uh, customers here. So as long as those numbers continue to come down over time, as I expect uh, that to, um, that will be something to watch. But for right now, there is some customer concentration issue. There's also another concentration issue that we don't talk about nearly as often, and that is supplier concentration. A big part of this company's business is fulfillment services and helping customers to ship. Uh, as a result of that, uh, this company gets 50, 59% of its shipping transactions are processed through a DHL, which is a global FedEx-like uh, uh, shipper. So that is some serious concentration uh, right there. Now, offsetting that fact is the fact that DHL actually owns more than 5% of Global E's stock. So they do have a financial incentive uh, to keep that partnership going. But make no mistake, if that relationship was to sour for whatever reason, that could be trouble. Yeah. And I imagine DHL, uh, I, I don't know precisely how big DHL is as a business, but they're worth a lot more than the 5% stake they have in a small cap company, right? And so, so like, it's it's great that they have that skin in the game. Um, and I think the incentives are generally aligned there. But if it's uh, if it makes sense for them to do something out of their own benefit, the stake is not so big that it would prevent them from doing it. That's correct. But Global E is a revenue source for them too. If they're, if they're instructing their customers to go through DHL. So there's plenty of alignment of incentives between those two businesses, but it's still worth uh, knowing about. Now, we touched on this in the top of the show when we were trying to find competition. Um, this company doesn't really list out that many direct competitors because of kind of the unique thing, unique nature uh, of its businesses. But they really said that our biggest competitor is just companies choosing to do all this work uh, in-house. If you are a big international company with plenty of resources, I can see you foregoing uh, this kind of a solution because you already have a footprint uh, everywhere. If you're a small or medium-sized businesses and you don't have that expertise and you don't have the people that you can uh, contact to get that done, I can see that being a very attractive thing for you. But this company is basically saying, we are going to have to educate our market, our, our customers as to why they need us. Uh, so that might be a long-term challenge. Yeah, I, I really do like the idea of investing alongside category creators, though. And and I look at what Globally is doing, and it, and it seems like that. Um, I think there are a lot of companies in terms of market value that could do this themselves, right? They could make those investments themselves. Um, they are not most companies, though. They, they, rep they represent uh, a very large chunk of either market cap or value or uh you know, merchandise volume, however you'd like to look at it. But the reality is that this is too complicated a problem for most companies to invest in on their own. And it really only makes sense if you're on the international conglomerate level. 
That's right. And of course, there's competition from the industry giants uh, of the world. Uh, you could see a company like Amazon uh, offering this. One thing they do push back against there, and I think they have a, a big point against that. And they say, sure, you can go with Amazon and then you get international exposure, but then you are beholden to Amazon's rules and regulations. And if you are a company, how many times, have, if you're a brand, we have seen them want to take ownership of that uh, customer relationship back in house. They realize that going through part portals uh, such as Amazon uh, might not be the best way to establish a long-term relationship with their customers. So um, I, that's why we've seen, one of the reasons we've seen such huge growth in companies like uh, Big Commerce and, and Shopify. So from that level, I think that partnering with Global E is going to be very attractive to a lot of companies. Yeah, in the in the retail space, there's been this dynamic over the last five to ten years where I think a lot of retailers are like, yeah, like we'll we'll work with all these online marketplaces that already have like you know this this massive customer base. All we need to do is set up a digital storefront in their skin. And then, you know, a couple years past, they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you've totally separated us from our customers. And it used to be a direct relationship that they were able to manage much more closely. And now it's something where, yeah, you're, you're beholden to the marketplace operator. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these brands have a lot of pull and a lot of power. And I think they're realizing, you know, we, we should flex that. We shouldn't be seeding that. Why would you give up that customer relationship if you didn't have to? To your point... I'm an Amazon customer. I'm not a customer of the products and services they buy. I go to Amazon first, and whatever Amazon offers me, that's what I choose to shop from. I have almost zero brand loyalty to anybody that's on there. <laughs> so, Brian, we're we're still in early days with this business. Um, you know, we we don't know uh, when shares are going to price, what they're going to price at. Uh, there's still a lot of details uh, to be figured out. But where does this sit for you? Um, you know, it's it's a recurring business. The margins you you noted aren't quite as high as you'd normally like to see. Um, you know, is this something that you're interested in as a as a portfolio idea? Very much so. I think that this has potential 10-bagger written all over it. I mean, I like that the company is in hyper-growth mode. I like that they get customers and then keep them for a long period of time. I like the business angle here. I like the the opportunity. I like that they're already profitable. There is a lot, a lot, a lot to like about this business. To your point, we don't know management's holdings. We don't know uh, the valuation. We don't know what the post-IPO balance sheet's going to go like. And there might be some other risks that we don't know yet. We also don't know how are they going to operate as a public company. But I put this up there, as you said, kind of with Olo, where my first look at it was like, wow, I like just about everything about this business. I will not be a day one buyer, but you can bet I'm going to be start to track this company closely. Yeah, this is the one where you cross your fingers and hope that not too many people hear about it, right? <laughs> you know, and that, and that people don't get too excited. I think it will probably fly under the radars of, of a lot of investors because it's an international business. Um, most of the business they do is, is not based in the United States. Um, but if I had to guess, Brian... I think there is a higher likelihood of someone coming in and buying this business at some point than this business being uh, a market loser or something that you know goes to zero. I, I think that the the upside is is pretty obvious, as you mentioned. There's there's definitely 10x potential, especially with where it's going to price likely. Um, but it might be so attractive that someone goes in and says, you know, this would be a really nice feature for, for us to add to our suite. <laughs> I, I Like you said, that, that wouldn't necessarily surprise me if they don't even come public, if they just 
Shopify looks at these numbers and says, eh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll add you. I mean, it's going to be, again, a drop in the bucket for a company like then. I'm really interested to see what kind of valuation this company pulls. Again, about 130 or so uh, a million in revenue. We've seen companies come public dealing out like 40 times sales, 50 times sales. So that could be a five, six, seven billion dollar company. Um, Again, this company has 30% gross margins, so I've got my fingers crossed that it's rational and says prices are at 20 times sales. I would love to get into this business at a sub $3 billion valuation. Yeah, but you know, Brian, your, your guess is as good as mine with these things. We, <laughs> we just kind of have to wait and see. Every time I've thought I've had a good handle on where things are going to price, I've just been totally wrong. Yes, uh, same with me. <laughs> just, Maybe we could do a follow-up show down the road and, and talk about how this thing actually priced. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think you're right. This one, this one, and Olo are are watch list stocks for me almost immediately. Um, I'm hoping that they wind up debuting at valuations that aren't insane, and that I can take a small nibble um, and then follow them over time because I think they're both just doing really interesting things. Totally agree, Brian. Uh, shout out again to our to our listener uh, and fan. Uh, Max the Comrade for throwing this one on our radar, folks. If you ever have something you want Brian and I to talk about, Brian is at Brian Feroldi on Twitter. I'm at Wiley Lewis. We're also at MF Industry Focus or industryfocus.fool.com. I, I can't emphasize it enough, Brian. When we get suggestions for shows, it's like one of our favorite things. Our homework's been done for us. We just got to go in and fill out the notes. Absolutely. Again, this company we would I would not have heard about if it wasn't for Max the Comrade. So totally, if you have shows, ideas, if you have tickers you want us to check out, uh, let us know. We're happy to talk about them. Brian, thank you so much for joining today's show. I would say you were quite articulate today. <laughs> Thank you, Kellen. <laughs> so, so, so disappointing to not live up to my title. <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocusatfool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, fool on. Fool on.